If you have your Bibles, you can open me to Genesis chapter 3. You can take out your outline and you see this outline and sermon entitled, How Did We Get Here? Over the next several weeks, as we've discussed, we'll just be looking at uh, part one of Genesis chapter 3 and look at part two next week. But we'll be dissecting and looking at how we live in this world as believers in the midst of what seems to be cultural shifts and changes in our cultural climate. None of us are unaware of the world that we're living in today. As we look at Genesis chapter 3 and we look in light of where we are today, if you've watched the news or if you've opened your eyes to what's happening out there, you can see that we live in a world that is full of brokenness. There's war, there's famine, there's poverty, there's sickness, there's hurting, there's lostness, there's darkness, there's pain, there's suffering. And at times we look around and say, how did it get this bad? Uh, what's going on here? At what point did it get this bad? But you look back all through the generations and you see that every great theologian that's lived on this earth has always believed the end of the world is coming during their tenure because they believe, could it get any worse than it is right now? Right? Theologians back in years past, generations past, would look at the world around them and say, surely it couldn't get any worse than this. Surely the Lord's coming back now because it could not get any worse than it is right now. And yet here we are still here. And so we continue to go forward, and it's nothing new. If you go back in Genesis chapter 3, as your hand is there, look at Genesis chapter 3, and let's just take a, a quick scan. You've got Genesis chapter 3, the fall, which we'll talk about in just a moment. You take one chapter forward, Genesis chapter 4, what is that? People start murdering each other, right? You got Cain killing Abel. We're right after the fall, Cain kills Abel. We're one chapter in, after the fall, we got people killing each other, right? You take a few chapters over, you see in Genesis chapter 6, just two chapters past the fall, you got corruption in the world was so great that God flooded the earth. That's how bad things have gotten. That God flooded the earth. All right, you, you, you just keep going a few pages over and you got the Tower of Babel, that corruption again had spread so, so much that God has spread the people and scattered the people with different tongues. You, you, keep, you keep going a little bit more, you see Sodom and Gomorrah has its place on the pages and you get thinking... Well, maybe things are not so bad, yeah? I mean, you look back at the text and you see after the fall, the corruption and the struggle and the strife and the strain that begins to appear all because of the central act of the fall. So let, let's take our time. Let's look through what the Lord has brought us to in Genesis chapter 3 as we look at part 1 of how did we get here? And then as we move forward to how do we live in light of where we are? So let me read Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than, all the other, uh, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman, when the woman saw that the tree uh, was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Let's pray together before we begin to notice some things. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. 
Lord, thank you for your guidance and your leadership and that you are a good shepherd to lead and guide us. This morning, would your word be a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway? Would we not learn more information to retain in our brains, but would we lead to uh, implementation that would lead us and guide us back to our homes, back to our jobs, and back into the world that is all around us? We're grateful for you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's, let's journey through Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 together. So there's three things that I want us to notice together. First is, number one on your outline, the craftiness of the serpent. You see the description that we have of the serpent. We don't understand or we don't, we're not told, excuse me, where the serpent comes from. All that we know in this moment is the serpent was a, uh, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the description here, the descriptor of this beast, this serpent, is that it was crafty. Now, in, in the Hebrew, there's not a negative connotation of crafty. It was just simply that he is a crafty, cunning, smart serpent. Now, maybe Eve didn't understand who she was talking to or what she was talking to in the moment, but at the end of the day, this serpent had come to deceive Eve. I believe that the seeds that were sown in Eve were the seed of discontentment and doubt into Eve. See, the serpent comes and says these central words, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, let's recall for a moment where they are. In the midst of this beautiful, plentiful, abundant life that Adam and Eve are living. Every need, every whim, everything that they could ever want was taken care of. In the vastness of this space of the Garden of Eden. At times in my, in my small brain, I would like to think that they're, they're in this small garden, right? When you hear of a garden, sometimes you think of the garden out back. And so Adam and Eve were constrained to this tiny little place or this little plateau where there's a few vegetable gardens. Or maybe it's like a little a few raised beds that every day they would go out and pick an apple and that's all they had. But no, it talks about the Euphrates and the vastness of the Garden of Eden that they had everything that they would want right there in front of them. A perfection of communion with God. Everything that they would want right in front of them. Every need, every whim. They were naked and unashamed. They were just living good life. And here the serpent comes to maybe sow a seed of discontentment in their hearts. Did, did God really say that you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? Beginning to think, isn't there something God would restrict you from? turning the focus off all that God had given, all that God had blessed them with to this one thing that they were prohibited from doing. Isn't that how Satan sometimes works? Look at all that God is doing, all the vastness, all the goodness that he has given, all the blessing and abundant life that he has given. And the enemy would come and say, but don't you remember that, that one thing? Remember that thing that is just, right, just that discontentment? I mean, even last week, e even last week, I, I left this church possibly more discouraged than I've left this place in a long time. It's for simple, stupid reasons. That as the rain came down, I, I got to thinking, Lord, we're, we're in this building. We have no thoroughfares to the rest of our space. We have to go outside, walk around in the rain to get to the rest of our buildings. And I know that it's frustrating for myself and for all of you to have to go outside in the rain to get to your Bible fellowship classes. And over the week, the Lord just worked on my heart to say, Mark, for 14 weeks, you have gathered outside in a parking garage. You've gathered in a church with beautiful weather, no rain. You have a building to walk into, a sanctuary that has been here for 105 years, and you're going to complain about rain one Sunday in a month. 
See, the enemy focused on all the Lord had done, all that he's doing right here in the midst of us, in the midst of this sanctuary, in the midst of this people. God is doing an incredible work. But what did the enemy do? Hey, it's raining. Focus on the frustration of the rain. Focus on all that discouragement that the enemy has allowed. That's what he does in your life, in my life. He sows that seed of discouragement. He's a crafty, a cunning enemy to undercut all the blessing, all the goodness of what the Lord is doing, to simply say, shouldn't you look? Shouldn't you look at all the discouragement, all the darkness that's around? And shouldn't that be a sign that God has left you? It it seems to me that the two would be congruent here from Genesis chapter 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. It it seems right in line with 1 Peter 5, that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That in Jude, the, the prayer would be that Satan would not outwit us and that we would be, not be ignorant of his schemes as a deceiver and a liar and murderer from the beginning. So we set the stage that the craftiness of the serpent, but we also notice together in Genesis chapter 3, the offer of freedom from the serpent. As the serpent comes, and maybe Eve's first mistake was just talking to the serpent in the first place and having a conversation with somebody who's attempting to undercut the Lord's work. But here you have the offer of freedom. The serpent says to Eve, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now right off the bat, you would know that that's not what God said. God gave them a prohibition against one tree in the garden. But in that moment, the the enemy would come to say, did God not prohibit you from eating of any tree in the garden? I think at times this is another strategy of the enemy to remind us or to believe in us that God is so restrictive. Right, that God has restricted us where we can't have any fun. We can't enjoy life. We can't enjoy what God has blessed in this world. And so God, God has restricted us by his word to a very small segment of things that are really not that enjoyable. And at times in our culture, we say things like, surely, surely my God would want me to be happy. Surely my God would want me to have fun. Surely my God wouldn't do that to me. Surely my God wouldn't allow, surely my God wouldn't do that. Have you, have you heard that? And I'm far less interested in what our God would or wouldn't do. I'm interested in what the God of the Bible is like, what his characteristics and his attributes are like, that his ways are higher than our ways. And at times he does things. And yes, we don't understand all of his ways, but we understand that they are good and that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so what the enemy does here is you see the offer of freedom, but get these two points. That the enemy will question the word of God first. He said the enemy comes to question the word of God. Did God really say You see, the enemy will always question the word of God, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of his word. If we get to undercut the very foundations of the word, this is why we memorize it, we believe it, because we believe the importance of studying and believing and living God's word, because we understand the enemy comes to destroy and devour the word of God and discount the word of God. Friends, we believe that God's word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. And that is not something that we inscribe in the front of Bibles and just say, that's a nice thing to say. But when we allow God's word to light our pathway, friends, we, we understand that we may not understand everything that he leads us to. But can I tell you, when we get lost as a culture, 
as a church and as a faith family and individually is when we stop allowing God's word to be a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. When we shoot that light out, friends, we get lost. As a culture, as a people, when we stop allowing God's word to be the lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway, we get dead lost. And the enemy would say, light your pathway with your feelings. Light your pathway with your emotions. Light your pathway with what culture norms would say. Light your guide to be anything else but the word of God. Or, in other words, let God's word be one thing that you light your pathway with in in regards to a lot of other things. God's word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. And you see, the very first thing, the very first thing that this serpent would do is to undercut and question God's word. And in our culture, in our time today, we see such lack of authority in God's word. And maybe we would say, yeah, that was written a long time ago. It's not true today. It's not true for our time today. It doesn't have any relevance for me today. Friends, God's word has stood the test of time for generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. And so you see the enemy come and say, that lamp that you've been guiding your pathway with is not fit for lighting anymore. Light it with your feelings. Light it with your emotions. Light it with cultural norms. Friends, when we light our pathway with anything else other than God's word, we will get lost. And if the enemy can't undercut the word of God, then The enemy would question the way of God. And so you see the enemy come to question the word of God that he ought to actually say. But then you see in verse 4 that the enemy would come to question the way of God. As the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees in the midst of the garden. But God said, you will not eat of the fruit in the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that you will eat of it and your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You see the twist of what the enemy does, the serpent does. Questions the word of God, but when the word of God, the enemy, or Eve knows what to say here, the enemy goes to then say, well, I don't think that God would, wouldn't kill you. In fact, you would be illuminated. You would see more. You would know more. You would understand more. Here Eve, or Eve is questioned by the way of God. If the word of God, the way of God are always questioned by the enemy. I'll tell you again how this plays itself out in today's world. If an enemy would come to question the way of God. At times in my life, even though I know, and that we have talked about, we have sung about it, we have wrestled with it, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though I know that with the depth of my heart, there are moments in my life where I sin and fall short. And the enemy would come and say, Mark, That's it. God could not love you any longer. Your sin is so great. Your sin is so vast. Our God could not love you. Our our God could not love you anymore. And even though I know the way of God is that all who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Even though I know that, that that is the way of God, the enemy would come and say, that's not truly the way of God. God cannot and would not love you any longer. Your sin is too great. Your sin is too vast. You've messed up too many times now. You feel that. There's the opposite side of it too that happens that at times when we walk through difficulties and hardships and struggles and pains that the enemy would come and say, man, surely God has left you. You see what God has allowed in your life? A loving God would not do that. A loving and kind God would not allow that into your life. 
A loving and kind God surely would not do that in the world. The enemy comes to question the word of God, but also the way of God. I know I'm the pastor of this church, and I wish that I had every answer to every hardship that we face. And there are times that we walk through things, and I say, Lord, I, I don't know. I don't understand why you're walking through that difficult valley. I don't understand why you're walking through that valley of the shadow of death. I, I don't, I wish I understood. But the reason why at the outset of this service we could proclaim that his name is wonderful and it's on Christ the solid rock we can stand is because we believe and know from the bottom of our heart, from the authority of God's word, that he is a good shepherd that would lead us and guide us, that he would not forsake us. I'll tell you why I believe that. His name is wonderful because I am a deeply flawed sinner, broken by the stains of sin. At the simplicity of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he sent his son, that if I would believe in him, I would not perish, but I would have everlasting life. The simplicity of the gospel message that would tell me that the way of God is good. So feel the offer of freedom that the enemy would proclaim to say, just come, take a bite. Which would lead to number three, that the last thing that we would notice together is the deceit of sin. So the offer of freedom to say, look and eat, this would be good, this would be wonderful, your eyes would be open and you would be like God, knowing good from evil. The offer of freedom that you would be like God always, always leads not to freedom, but to captivity. The deceit of sin is so real. The serpent says, you'll not die. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. You'll be changed in a moment, in a flash. All your needs will be met. You'll know good from evil. All will be right if you just take of this fruit. And indeed, Adam and Eve were changed, but not like they thought. See, the deceit of sin is it'll always tell you, if you can just get it, you'll be okay. If you can just get, it'll, it'll be okay. It looks good. Look here in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, she took and ate. She had to realize that sin is always so enticing. It looks so good. It looks so right. It looks so in order. It looks like it will satisfy you in all the right ways. Sin always looks right and pure and good. But it always leads to death. If you look at Proverbs 5, in the coming weeks we will talk about pornography and the ravaging effects that it has on our culture. But for right now, as you see, Maybe so clearly in Proverbs 5, the deceit of sin. It says, the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. You see, this adulterous woman that would call the adultery and the, the enticement of sin, it drips like honey. It's enticing. It looks so good. It's, its words are, 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 are smoother than oil. It's enticing. It looks good to satisfy. But you see the result. Even though its lips are of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end it is bitter as gall, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps lead straight to the grave. 
is, hey, maybe today you are struggling with the deceit of sin. You have bought into the lie that if you could just get that, you would be finally satisfied. And friends, we live in a culture where sin is so readily and obvious to us. I mean, you turn on the TV and what is the culture showing us that you have voids all in your souls? I mean, advertisement, tell us and show us exactly how the enemy works, right? If you could just, if you could just drink this drink here, then all of a sudden you'd be transported to a, a beachside vacation with all your best friends p- partying all around you and you have a wonderful time, right? If you order this exercise device, Right, it'll come to your house and all of a sudden as that exercise device fits into your living room, you will have chiseled abs and you will be the hunk of all hunks, right? If you could just do this thing or have this drink or eat this food or go to this restaurant, your family's going to sit around and, and watch and eat and enjoy taking a meal together and you will be a happily ever after. You feel that? In the same way, sin is so deceptive. Just take and drink. Take and eat. Take and behold, and all of your satisfaction will be met. But it, it simply doesn't work. Like drinking salt water to continue to make you thirst more and more. And friends, when you're in that pattern of habitually going to those things that you think will satisfy, but never satisfy. Sometimes it's like a dog returning to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. The very thing that makes us sick, we keep going back for again and again and again and again. Friends, are you weary of the deceit of sin? Over the next few weeks, we'll talk about and look at how we as believers live in this fallen world. But again, there is nothing new under the sun. As you go in the back of your outline, you see And in the midst of all this pain and fall and difficulty and deceit of sin, you see that there is hope. I don't want to leave you this morning just with a whole drum of how difficult everything is. There is hope in the midst of all this. You see Romans 5, 12 and 18. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This morning, I don't want you to leave here just deeply down by the weight of sin and the struggle of the fall that we all feel on a daily basis. I want to remind you that Jesus has come to give you life and abundant life. In the midst of all that we face, maybe Matthew 4.10 needs to be your, your battle cry as you leave this morning. As Jesus was tempted by Satan, as he has been tempted three times to undercut the word of God and the way of God, he simply looked at Satan and said, be gone, Satan. The word is written that we worship the Lord and we serve him only. Maybe this morning as we come to a time of invitation, you simply need to say, Satan, be gone. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me individually, I will serve you, Lord, and none other. I'm tired of the deceit of sin in my life, and I'm going to follow and trust in you. I'm tired of drinking of the dirty cisterns. I'm tired of drinking from the salt water that continues to make me thirsty upon thirsty upon thirsty. Lord, I'm trusting in you today. It's maybe Matthew 4.10. Be gone, Satan. Worship the Lord and serve him only. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. 
Lord, we recognize that there is an enemy who is out to steal, kill, and destroy. We also recognize, as we've talked about, that we put on the full armor of God, that we would extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. We recognize that we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Lord, I pray that when those moments come, that the enemy would come to question the word and the way of God, that we would be prepared. That we would not listen and deceive ourselves, that we would be quick to turn to your word, that it would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway, that we wouldn't allow so many other things to control and lead us, that we would be controlled by the authority of your word, that we would read it, that we would live it, that we would be nourished by it daily, moment by moment. Lord, if there is someone in this room Lord, who is under the weight and the burden of sin on their shoulders. Who is weary and tired and broken. Lord, I pray that they would not leave this room under the weight that they feel right now. That they would turn to you. They would be drawn to you as the prince of peace, the the savior of this world. We thank you for our time together. In your name we pray. Amen.